Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's about um, 30 seconds after 4 o'clock. Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 tonight. Today, two responses to the Chilcot Report. The first, a rather short one, from Dr Margie Beavers, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and later in the program, a rather long one, from author, journalist, researcher and coordinator of the Victorian Peace Network in 2003, and that's, of course, Nick McClellan, and he'll be analysing the Chilcot Report in a bit more detail. The economic and political situation in Malaysia with Kian Wong, a Malaysian journalist working in Sydney. Prospects for Filipinos under their new president, Rodrigo Duterte. And I'll be speaking with human rights and union activist Peter Murphy. Palestinian-Australian academic, Professor Basson Daly, will be talking about his family life prior to coming to Australia and activism here since. But first, let's hear it from Mr. Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, Lister, when, as the bulldust settled and a dishevelled, caring business class, big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bulls staggered over the line, spare a thought for the selfless exponents of the greatest little economic order of them all, struggling to achieve the important reforms they know this country needs to make life better for all of us, including the all of us who didn't give their party the mandate it needed for those reforms. Smash evil unions so we can have flexibility uncertainty in the workplace, remove all taxes on the rich and great corporate citizens to save them wasting time, avoiding them time better utilised, generating wealth for all of us, increase handouts from those who cannot avoid tax so the selfless exponents can continue to do what's best for those who can't avoid paying tax, that sort of thing, like infrastructure and any public asset that turns over a neat little profit, which must clearly be the business of the caring business class, who have sheeted the blame for the poor showing of their caring business class party and the attraction of loony alternatives to a false perception. Jeff, all and then some, co-founder of the Business Profits Council, bemoaned that caring employers were once seen as nation-building and heroic. Must say I'm trying to think of the last time I had that impression. But anyway, thanks to community activism, obviously a very, very bad thing, the general public started to see big business as the enemy. Business negatively stereotyped as destroying the forests and ripping off the public, profit-seeking. Who but the most naive would think that? And one of our favourites, industry profits group Big Supremo, in us for what it's worth, Willocks, complained, business does not want to be painted as self-interested. Well, in us for what it's worth, you mightn't want to be, but sorry to tell you it's hard to see a way round it. They, they sort of go hand in hand. Another concerned citizen, caring business class brackets temporary MP Corey St. Bernardi, with a name like that, any wonder he's so concerned that marriage equality will lead to bestiality, 
Corey blamed that extreme long-haired commie greenie Malcolm for the caring business class party's losses. Argued with his usual insight, the caring business class party needed to bolster its support base by agreeing with him by heading right and not stopping, establishing a body somewhere out there similar to Get Up, Corey's idea of an international comic conspiracy against everything the decent Christian world stands for, or for which, but you know what he means. Many of the caring business class victims and near victims displayed, displayed such graciousness and acceptance they made Malcolm's post-election sometime in the wee small hours Sunday speech look all reason, self-awareness and beneficence. Ex-train killer Andrew Nikoff Lickmai down in Tasmania, for instance. This is what dishonesty looks like. Get up, spent 500000 and imported 90 activists into bass. It's sad to think that this sort of dishonest campaigning approach works in this country. Well said, Andrew, and it means you might have to go out and get a job, but spending money and using people in an election, unheard of. And ex which probably explains his giant mind, the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, who scraped in, blamed bikies, union thugs, activists and sneaky socialist tactics for his plummeting popularity. Obviously nothing to do with cruelty, inhumanity and weasel words, although why insult weasels? And just as obviously, hasn't he taken it well? It's a reflection on the quality of the, of the rest of them that some commentators are speculating Duffer is first in line for a promotion. Speaking of duffers, over in the US of the UN of the US of the world, being careless is especially careless for some and especially beneficial for others. Sending thousands of classified state secrets on a personal server thingy is careless but not criminal. Especially beneficial if you plan to be big supremo of the biggest exponent of the greatest little economic order of them all. Having a broken rear light on your car may be called careless and obviously so criminal it warrants summary execution or lying on a footpath with two giant uh, coppers holding you down is obviously so careless it warrants summary execution. Not suggesting the slightest semblance of racism, but it does appear careless could be especially careless if you're careless and black, or black, which is apparently axiomatically careless. Thank goodness I'm white. Hillary must be breathing a sigh of relief. Related to the coalition of the killing perpetrators, George W. Bash the workers, Tiny Blyer, and the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in the last dark ages, all denied they were war criminals. Said the ongoing slaughter in then evil, now good, good, good Iraq showed how much better off the dead and injured are thanks to their invasion. Certainly there are terrorist groups there who, who may not have been there when we liberated these people. Certainly the country is a little uh, destabilised. And, and yes, it does seem thousands of these people may be being uh, slaughtered and blown up and injured, but we can be sure they know as we know they are now better off 
thanks to us, to our goodness, to our Christian humanitarian invasion, our liberation. And the little bald-headed bloke said he had no regrets and I would uh, do it again. I, I really would. There, there was no lie. There, there were errors in intelligence, but there was no lie. There, there really wasn't. And for once we'd have to agree with him because we've always questioned his intelligence. And the little bald-headed bloke, the man of steel, also said the problem lay not with his bestie, George W., nor Tiny, even though Tiny was a socialist and obviously Tiny and the little bald-headed bloke would have had chasmic ideological differences, but with that commie sympathiser, Barack for change, 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 who failed to send in more and more trained killers until there were no Iraqis left, and that would have relieved a fair bit of the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people problem as well. It, it really would. And this true blue Aussie ex-trained killer, now-trained killer academic, if, if that not be an oxymoron, Peter Lai, said the blame for the lie is that damn Hus uh, that, that damn Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, was harbouring terror and planned to invade every Christian country in the world, lay fairly and squarely with that damn Hussein himself. He misled them. Uh, Peter, George W., tiny, little bald-headed bloke, colon, as in full of shit, pal to the rich, Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs, et al., which bit of, we have no weapons of mass destruction, didn't you understand, misled you? And which bit of the UN, of the US, of the UN, of the world's inspectors, there are no weapons of mass destruction, didn't you understand, misled you? As for George W, I can understand confusing you, and Donald knew he didn't know what he didn't know, he knew he didn't know, but despite all that, there was a kind of connection, kind of something in common between George W and that damn Hussein. Arabic is written right to left, backwards as we see it, and George W reads his comics upside down. The guarantee, despite some biased, long-haired commie people still using the word lie in relation to George W. Tiny and the little bald-headed bloke, is that the honourable people involved were all politicians, so we know it couldn't have been a lie. Speaking of lies, then Socialist Party Supremo and would-be but never big Supremo Simple Simon said the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Report vindicated his opposition at the time, which must have been extremely muted because my recollection is Simple couldn't get to the runways and wharves fast enough to wave the train killers goodbye. Still, the Socialist Party now thinks it was a mistake. It just took 13 years to wake up. With the impeccable timing of Burke and Wills, this Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, very well-spoken lawyer, speaking from Washington yesterday, covering all bases, obviously, called for the Syrian government to be tried for war crimes. <laughs> We'd think they'd let the dust settle just a little bit, wouldn't we? Middle East lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, just ask the US of, Saudi Arabia, has vowed it will strike with an iron hand against, wait for it, against religious extremists. Hang on, where did I say? Saudi. Upset over religious extremism. Might pop down Friday morning between a few public beheadings and see if we can get a comment. Another bald-headed bloke, well, chap, 
that prince, son of Big Ears, who's been producing a new batch of the highest paid doll bludgers, got down to Prince Work and produced a video to support his dear old granny's home country's Stand Up to Bullying Day. You common people must remember we are all born equal. He popped his head out for his latest doll check. Finally, reacting to the election and getting in early to prepare for one of his own, New South Wales big supremo Mike Bed of Roses in New South Wales took steps to convince Vince Voters his state was not going to the dogs. Good afternoon. And that was our good friend, Mr Kevin Healy. And Mr Kevin Healy is back on air tomorrow at 9 until 10 with City Limits. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food. Childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. The long-awaited Chilcot report has been published and today I'll be speaking with two peace activists and the first is Dr Margie Beavis, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Why, Margie, did it take so long to tell what many people knew so many years ago? Goodness knows why it took so long. I think he was trying to be thorough to try and avoid criticism, but I really don't know. It's certainly been a very long time in the making, but at least when it's come, it seems to have done a reasonably good job in that the English are really looking long and hard at how they came to make this decision. Their Prime Minister has apologised to the nation and it was in fact this decision that shifted the English to have a system where they now debate before they send troops to war. And what's really um, depressing is that in Australia there's no moves to have a similar inquiry at all and it's long overdue. I'm sure you saw Mr Howard the other night saying no problems? Yes, there's a lack of insight there into a whole set of issues and given that uh, the weapons of mass destruction so-called intelligence was widely thought to be very dodgy and Andrew Wilkie resigned a week before the war began because he thought this was clearly poor information for John Howard to sit there and say there was no doubt about the um, information was very I suppose characteristic but hard to believe. MAPW and other groups have been calling for a number of years to have an inquiry here in Australia. Yep. In fact, in 2002, before this war, MAPW, it wasn't me, it was others in the organisation put out quite a detailed report saying that Iraq was already highly damaged and that going to war now would be catastrophic for the country and create all sorts of problems, sort of up to half a million deaths and also more risk of terrorism, more risk of regional destabilisation um, and a strong possibility of civil war. And there's absolutely no satisfaction for MAPW in that that's actually what's followed. But it was very... I mean, this, the, the going into Iraq... Iraq's problems have been going for decades. I mean, the 1991 war by the first President Bush damaged the society enormously, as did the sanctions that followed and... and Going in in 2003 was really just damaging a very weakened country to start with. And that's the whole thing with this inquiry. It's it's soul-searching by the British people, but I haven't heard any commentators talking about what it's done to the Iraqi people, this war. 
Yes, the civilians sort of casualties, nobody wants to look at them. In terms of analysis, even the most conservative, the very, very most conservative findings is that about 176,000 died, and that's drawing on media reports and hospital reports. Now, an awful lot of people die in war that don't get reported in the media and don't go to hospital to get accounted for in the morgue. The Lancet came out in about 2007 saying it was, I think, 655,000 dead. And then the German branch of our organisation, the National Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW, which is a horrible acronym, but they did a really detailed health survey that not only looked at the published deaths and the hospital and police deaths, but also did surveys of various areas asking Iraqi civilians who died in what areas and how many and for what reason. And when you take into account not just the direct deaths from the conflict, but also the deaths from the destruction of the health system, the results come out closer to a million civilians dead, and nobody seems to want to look at that and talk about that. But in war, really, the death of civilians and the death of children needs to be one of the first things that you're aware of when you're planning to go to war. In recent years, you have spoken to people from Iraq about the health system? A doctor came out to Australia about six years ago talking and spoke with us about what's happened to the Iraq system. In, in, in 2003... A lot of doctors were already gone, but in 2003, when the Americans invaded, within a year, half the health professionals were gone, had fled. They were targeted, and then, weren't they? And then the ones that, well, that's, that's why they fled, and, and then the ones that remained continued to be targeted so that the health system, the infrastructure is really poor, but also this guy said there's no one there to train the doctors. You know, they, they don't have any senior specialists to train any of the specialists, and getting basic training is really hard. And the ones that did remain were incredibly brave because they, the, the nurses and the doctors were deliberate targets by the Iraqis that remained. So the destruction of the health system was, was enormous and created a lot of death that was otherwise preventable or treatable. So it's, it's not just... It's, in fact, the whole middle class of Iraq really sort of vanished because the Americans said anyone who's a member of the Ba'athist Party could no longer have a government position where, in fact, in Iraq should be a person with a government position, you had to be a member of the Ba'athist Party. So in fact that disbanded the, the public service, it disbanded the military. Um, and in fact there's a lot of reporting that a significant chunk of the military went off to team with other groups and that's, it's in part the Iraqi army that has gone on to join this fundamentalists to become part of ISIS. So it's, it's, this has destabilisation of the region and destabilisation of the country has sort of reverberated and expanded and looks like a very major piece of folly and it was looked and it was said to be a major piece of folly before it was even started so we need to look at who benefited from this war anytime <laughs> anytime anyone goes starts talking about war you need to think about who's who's doing what and why um, what who exactly is to benefit to go to war i mean i think politically for Going to war to remain the prerogative of the Prime Minister is really wrong that we need. In 2015, I mean, we haven't learned anything in 2015. Tony Abbott sent a whole lot more forces to Iraq and Syria without a debate or a vote in Parliament. And he had no clear strategy for the operations and no clear purpose, no exit strategy. And we can do so much better than this. This is really wrong. That We need both houses of the Parliament to decide on this. We need well-researched well independent government information, a bit like the Office of Budget Assessments, we also need an independent legal opinion that going to war, if ever it's legal, it's hard to believe. But all those three things, Australia has none of those. At the moment, it's just a captain's pick. So I've just said there's no lessons learned? No, none, none. And to see John Howard 
saying that he was unrepentant was very discouraging. It, it suggests that Australia will go on to make the same mistakes. I mean, this is this is a massive invading Iraq was a massive strategic error, and absolutely appalling for the Iraqi people. But groups like MAPW will continue in their work against absolutely. war. I, I, yeah. Oh, yes. This is. This is. I mean, you have to be able to present war as a health issue because it clearly is. The politics tend to dominate it, but the health consequences and the humanitarian consequences are enormous and tend to be brushed under the carpet because they are inconvenient truths. So, yeah, MLW will keep going for sure. We've been, we've been around for 40 years. We'll keep plugging on. And the really sad thing is just in the last couple of days, I know it's been happening right through the time of people being killed virtually every day, but the, the massive bombing in Baghdad last week, and they're talking oh. about, well, the, the figure is 300 people dead. Now, how many more are going to die? How many are going to be maimed for life if they do survive? Yes, yes. And, and I mean, Iraq continues to be a very dangerous place. There's a whole lot of unexploded ordnance. I think the Americans in the first two weeks put in cluster munitions, you know, I think that left something like two million little cluster bombers all around Iraq. The sort of, it, it's a very damaged society and, yeah, as you said, the bombing last week was appalling. We really need to push out politicians to have an inquiry and to change how Australia decides to go to war. And if your listeners are interested, there's a group called the Australians for War Powers Reform, and they're a tremendous group. They should have a look at them on the internet because they've also, like MOPW, been pushing for reform for a long time. And that's Dr Margie Beavis, who's the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And as I said, about 20 past five this afternoon, we'll hear a much longer interview with Nick McClellan, who's spent many, many hours just starting to get through the, the report, which is um, absolutely huge. Take you weeks to read it, I think. So that's a bit later on in the, the program. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference, go to ipan.org.au and for protest details, see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter. The focus now is Malaysia and for an understanding of the political and economic situation in that country, I'm speaking with Keon Wong, a Malaysian journalist based in Sydney. I think the real problem we have at the moment is that Malaysia is being run by a party and a prime minister who has lost a great deal of legitimacy and credibility. And that makes, of course, governance pretty difficult in actually pretty difficult, challenging times for Malaysia, where its economy has been heavily impacted by the drop in the oil price. Oil revenue, of course, has been helping prop up the Malaysian economy because uh, the other main income earners for the economy have also been affected, like the commodity prices for palm oil, which Malaysia is a 
key world exporter. The general slowdown in China, where over half of Malaysia's economy depends on, has also affected Malaysia's economy. So there are several uh, pretty serious economic reform measures that the Malaysian government has talked about, wants to implement, but are finding it very difficult, obviously, to push through because uh, you have a government at the heart of it suffering from a great deal of uh, loss of credibility and legitimacy over these huge alleged uh, billion-dollar scandals that circle around the Prime Minister's office. And what are those issues he's trying to push through? There is something I guess Australians also would understand, this so-called budget repair problem. Malaysia's had a great deal of problem of investing for the future and funding a lot of things from you know, healthcare, education, to infrastructure, and um, Malaysia's had big deficit blowouts, which um, have been, until the oil price collapse, been funded and fueled. But what hasn't helped matters is off the books a bit and to the side has been this huge several billion dollar problem of uh, this Malaysian government guaranteed wealth fund called 1MDB, where it's alleged that several billion US dollars have gone missing or been misappropriated. The person who signs off on all of that, of course, has been the Malaysian Prime Minister. So you have this problem now of a leadership that is finding it very difficult to lead. What they have thrown up instead have been a whole host of very difficult issues and distractions that center around uh, race and religion, which has uh, divided up the electorate and society quite a lot and created a lot of problems that arise from that. And how is that downturn in the economy affecting the working people of Malaysia? Quite a lot. There, there's been, for some time now, since the global financial crisis of 2008, a great deal of unemployment and underemployment and underreported lack of employment. Uh, the government has been able, thanks to the high oil prices, thrown money at this problem by subsidizing a lot of incomes. But uh, a lot of that has been pulled back. And what the government has done is had to introduce, for instance, a goods and services tax, a GST, which um, has created huge rises in basic food, stuffs, transport, a lot of day-to-day cost of living pressures have, have increased. And the government has not been able to do what it's traditionally done, which is to soften the blow of this by subsidizing these prices for lower income earners. It doesn't have that revenue stream from the oil revenues coming in as much anymore to help that. So that on a practical level is pretty bad. Coupled on top of that with um, a huge deal of uh, jobs insecurity um, as um, there have been many layoffs as, uh, again, this downturn in the economy. What has been the international ramifications for Malaysia of the corruption that's been going on in Malaysia in the last year or so? Since the whole saga of the 1MDB sovereign wealth fund blew up roughly this time last year when it broke out internationally, I mean, there have been a lot of reports among a handful of brave um, online Malaysian news outlets that have been reporting on this, one of which, of course, got closed down by the government earlier this year. And then the uh, Wall Street Journal 
ran a series of exposés roughly this time last year, and also the London-based online news site Sarawak Report has also been running a whole bunch of documents. Malaysian government's uh, economic credentials have been badly damaged, I think, by this whole saga, partly because people have been so astounded by the sums involved. I mean, we're talking about several billion dollars allegedly gone missing or unaccounted for, invested in all sorts of dubious tax shelters, even reports that allege a few billion dollars that were supposed to have been paid to a Dubai base or Middle Eastern uh, sovereign wealth funds, debts that should have been repaid to the right party were instead paid to shady fly-by-night companies that didn't really exist. This type of scandal, when it affects you know private companies, seldom ever get to this scale. I mean, several billion dollars is a lot of money in anyone's language, and more so a developing country's economy like Malaysia, where it's you know, suffering from a great deal of unemployment and other cost-of-living issue problems. Have any lawsuits been instigated in other countries of the world relating to this? Yes. There are about seven different countries uh, and jurisdictions now which are hosting investigations into this on issues of uh, alleged money laundering to corruption. I guess among the most prominent are the investigations that are ongoing being run by the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI in America, as well as the Swiss authorities over some of these alleged uh, Swiss bank accounts, which uh, have may or may not have hosted the laundering of a lot of money. Singapore authorities have closed down at least uh, one Swiss-linked bank over this. There are investigations, I believe, going on in Britain as well. So this has actually, yeah, have global ramifications in terms of the money involved and where the money went and how the money was being used to fund all sorts of uh, unknown ventures, uh, which few people are finding this investment has accounted for. I mean, a lot of money has been taken out of Malaysia. And I guess the biggest scandal of all for a lot of Malaysians, which has upset a lot of Malaysians, is this sovereign wealth fund was supposed to be like a piggy bank to help out Malaysia during rainy days or difficult periods in the future. Whereas instead, given the huge amounts of debt that have been racked up, which uh, the Malaysian government is going to be responsible for, ultimately, because it signed off on backing them, these huge amount of debts will have to be paid off for the foreseeable future. And that actually is going to be very bad for Malaysians at large. Even if this government resigns or quits or is sacked, Malaysia as a country will be on the hook. Has any member of the government been forced to stand down or been removed? No, but what has happened is that in the past year, the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak, and his party have been quite methodical in eliminating all of his most prominent rivals, including uh, sacking his deputy prime minister, various uh, other ministers, uh, including the chief minister of a a prominent uh, state that the party controls. He sacked uh, the attorney general, has uh, also removed a lot of officials in the anti-corruption agency, 
has not renewed the contract and removed a, a long-standing uh, central bank governor who was also seen as uh, too independent. There's been a methodical cleaning out, if you like, of the few checks and balances that were left in the system. And the shocking torture and murder of the, was it a prosecutor? Yes, there have been several murders and uh, deaths that have been allegedly linked to this huge scandal. It's not known, uh, nor has there been definitive proof that the prosecutor linked to this particular scandal. But I think his death certainly shocked a great deal of uh, urban Malaysians. There was also several other murders over the past few years that have been linked to the Prime Minister and his party, uh, which you know a lot of Malaysians still have a lot of questions for and uh, are curious to know what the results are about. I mean, there have been a lot of amazing allegations made, and I, I suppose a few of these allegations have really been answered. On the other side is human rights abuses. Do you have the figures of how many journalists, human rights activists and others have been targeted in recent times, either to be arrested or jailed? No, but it's over 100 who have been targeted. We're talking about activists, uh, lawyers, politicians, journalists, who've all been targeted using the very vague and somewhat draconian Sedition Act, which is um, a British colonial legacy that has been strengthened and reinforced by the present uh, ruling coalition to use against uh, its critics. And the Sedition Act, of course, is vague enough to be used against those who might disagree with the government. Many people have been silenced that way or made to go through the courts and spend a great deal of money trying to defend themselves. The Sedition Act and also the so-called Multimedia Communications Act, which... um, is supposed to oversee internet online news sites, uh, has also been used to clamp down on what has been a free open forum online, which have been reporting and uh, discussing these issues. The most prominent this year has been a few months ago when one of the leading news sites in Malaysia, MalaysianInsider.com, was suspended and then a few weeks later, closed down because of type of censorship. But generally, overall, I mean, the government has been quite methodical in trying to close down a lot of dissent, uh, whether through its party mechanisms in sacking um, dissenters in the party, including the former deputy prime minister, but also through pursuing its critics through the courts using the Sedition Act. And, of course, online is so important because of the, the control the government has of the media in Malaysia. Yes, the online world, since uh, Mahathir Mohamad was Prime Minister in the 90s, when he basically launched Malaysia's then multimedia super corridor idea, which was to bring the Malaysian economy into the future, uh, launch Malaysia's economy into the future with, with uh, the internet and online high-tech presence promised then one of the Bill of Guarantees for the Multimedia Super Corridor project was no censorship online. And Malaysia has largely enjoyed that freedom online in terms of news reporting. But in the last two years, uh, the crackdown has been quite strong and severe in the use and perhaps abuse of uh, the Multimedia Communications Act 
which authorities have used to basically uh, threaten a lot of even online outlets about their reporting. Can you talk now more about the movement, the Bersay movement, and perhaps more importantly, the the global Bersay movement? Uh, Global Bersay is a Swiss-based, Swiss-registered or Geneva-registered non-government organization, which is, I guess, a manifestation of international Malaysian diaspora that have over two, three rallies now actually run pro-democracy demonstrations for Malaysia. The last one, the Bursay 4 rally, which was run in Malaysia last year, was paralleled in over 70 cities around the world where Malaysians also gathered in solidarity with Bursay 4 in Malaysia. Global Bursay in some ways is... um, an organization that tries to harness and promote and spread that message of democratization and electoral reform for free and fair elections in Malaysia amongst um, Malaysians abroad. Can you explain just how unfair elections are in Malaysia? There has been a lot of gerrymandering but also malapportionment of electorates where rural electorates where the ruling coalition are in power because of the uh, rural electorate. Many of these rural electorates may be only a ninth or a tenth of the size of some of these urban, usually opposition-held electorates. That malapportionment yeah, is quite dramatic and quite huge. There is also, of course, um, in recent weeks, uh, a lot of allegations about tens of thousands of voters being moved around from one electorate to another by the Electoral Commission, uh, whose independence, of course, is quite suspect for many Malaysians. A lot of people are very concerned over a looming early elections that is much rumoured because uh, the Prime Minister is apparently keen to consolidate his power by winning yet another elections. But before that happens, there have been a lot of movements of yeah, voters has been alleged by Bursay too in Malaysia. But also a lot of these electorates where there have been many instances of alleged voter fraud. Bursay 2.0, the free and fair elections NGO in Malaysia, has documented this in various reports which are available online. It sounds to me as if it's going to be a fairly turbulent time in Malaysia leading up to those elections with um, a fairly dire economic situation, results of court cases in other countries, people determined to push for their rights to have a free and fair election and human rights in Malaysia. It is a very difficult problem. I mean, you're, you're really dealing with a government that, as I pointed out from the outset, you're dealing with a government that in many ways has lost a lot of credibility and legitimacy amongst Malaysians for a pretty urbanised, relatively well-off, middle-class ASEAN country like Malaysia. These uh, recent scandals have been quite a shock to their system. And I think the problem of um, the squeeze on the cost of living and on the economy have been pretty bad overall, while in a way a distraction from the core problem of uh, systemic abuses that many people allege the government is carrying out. A lot
Well, the Malaysians abroad have been very supportive of Global Bursae in its campaign for free and fair elections in Malaysia. I mean, Global Bursae was uh, instrumental in winning the right to vote overseas, postal voting for overseas Malaysians uh, in time for the last closely contested elections, the 13th general elections, which happened in 2013, where the current uh, ruling coalition government actually lost the popular vote. The opposition actually won that election, but thanks to the gerrymandering and the malapportionment of seats, as uh, I previously discussed, the government still won the majority of the seats in parliament. In terms of what the overseas um, Malaysians can do or are doing, many of them contribute to these campaigns uh, that Bursay 2.0 in Malaysia are carrying out, as well as the advocacy campaigns that Global Bursay abroad do at forums like the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, to hearings in London and Washington, as well as uh, making representations to government even in Canberra. And that was Australian-based Malaysian journalist Keon Wong speaking to me from Sydney a couple of days ago. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. We're 855 AM digital. We're 3CR. You can catch us on the line, 3cr.org.au. We stream for a week and you can have the program podcast. So go to 3cr.org.au and find out how it all happens. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, Sunday 14th of August. Brunswick Town Hall, Wurundjeri Land, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. 10am to 5pm. Free entry. Stalls, workshops, films, food. Childcare and kids space available all day. For more information, go to amelbournebookfair.org. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. Arm yourself with ideas. A 3CR supporter. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah. That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. The former mayor of Davao, 71-year-old Rodrigo Duterte in Mindanao, Philippines, was sworn in last month as the 16th president of the Philippines, a country of 100 million people. In his first speech, he said that he will use unusual methods to address unusual challenges while promising to adhere to law in domestic as well as international affairs. 
To analyse the speech and what might be ahead for the Filipino people, I spoke with Peter Murphy, long-time supporter of the Filipino people. And Peter, if I remember correctly, in an interview prior to the presidential election, you didn't have a great deal of positive things to say about Duterte. Is that right? His uh, persona, you know, was uh, a rough, uncouth sort of uh, performance uh, in public. He is quite popular in Davao, and uh, I knew before the election a bit about him because the uh, left-wing movement in Davao had a sort of modus operandi with him or an agreement, which uh, meant that there was less violence. There certainly were very few political murders happening in, in Davao, and there were some good social programs associated with his mayoralty. But, you know, there was also this uh, other side of um, quite reckless statements from Duterte about killing criminals and so on. And therefore, you know, anyone with any sensibilities about human rights would have reservations about him and the idea that he could be the president. A lot of questions about his performance on human rights there and also a doubt that he, he would get elected just because of the, it's a national electorate rather than his uh, city. But um, he had been the mayor of Davao for a very long time. You know, he had staying power politically. That's also true. How much power does a president in the Philippines have? Well, it's very much modelled on the US constitutional approach. So the president's got a lot of power. They really are the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. They appoint their cabinet, not from the elected Congress, but they just choose who they think would be the best team to run the government. So the executive is a separate body of which the president is the head. So, you know, it's a strong executive presidency. Complicated in the Philippines because it's a sort of a still sort of semi-colony of the United States and the US Embassy in Manila is a big place. I think a lot of government really happens there. So even if the constitutionally the President of the Philippines is a strong executive office, it often doesn't seem to be able to, to do things that are obvious uh, because we've been concerned about human rights you know, and uh, workers' rights and the environment in the Philippines for a long time. I've been able to see that even if the president makes a, a firm statement against the operation of murder teams, death squads, whatever, it never stops. In fact, often it accelerates. So there's, an, there's a sort of a military intelligence government going on in parallel to the civilian government. That's a very disturbing trend or, or reality in the Philippines, and it's definitely going to be one of the biggest challenges that Duterte faces if he really tries to deliver on some of the things he's now talking about. You've read his speech when he was sworn in. What has he promised? He tried to answer his critics by clearly saying that you know his background was as a lawyer and a prosecutor, which must have been a long time ago, and that he did understand and was fully committed to operating within the domestic law and within international law. So this was uh, already a sort of a, a response to you know the, the widespread criticism of his earlier statements. He also undertook to genuinely advance the peace talks, both with the National Democratic Front and the New People's Army on the one hand, and with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in Mindanao on the other. 
that's if it's got substance that really means some significant changes in the politics and economics of the Philippines so that's that's a very very significant thing and it also especially the talks with the National Democratic Front and New People's Army will be really objected to by the United States government and US military he's taking on a lot when he says that he's going to release all the political prisoners now it's only the second working day of his presidency and I haven't heard that they've been released there were about 20 released 15 to 20 released in the two weeks before he was sworn in so that's already a bit of a welcome sign political prisoners from where they're basically people who were active peasant leaders trade union leaders human rights workers women's organization leaders who have been arrested because they were effective political campaigners but they've been charged with you know carrying explosives and a firearms, just broadly charged with rebellion, things like this. So they're really held in prison. Generally, there's been no trial, and they have been there for years, awaiting some sort of process, but they're really just being held to keep them out of circulation. So as well as those sort of people, there's 18 people who were very prominent in the National Democratic Front who were licensed or given documents to enable them to be consultants in the peace process, which has been going on since the 1990s. So they're meant to be people who are free to move, to, to talk in the country with different organisations about the details of changes required to deal with the sort of core issues behind the armed conflict in the country. Now, 18 of them have been arrested, even though they carry papers saying they're not to be arrested, and some of them have been in jail for years. They're fairly high-level political figures important really to the future of the country so the release of them is really very important and they will be able to make a significant contribution to this uh, newly energized peace process immunity for military that still hangs in there doesn't it yeah well it's a bit it's a little bit early now but before he was sworn in duterte made quite a lot of comments about the need for the peace talks to really happen and uh, the military had voices coming out saying, well, they're our enemy. How can we be doing that? And uh, he slapped them down. You know, he said, well, aren't you in the army? Don't you take orders? And aren't I going to be the commander-in-chief? So shut up. <laughs> so he's sort of, uh, he knows, I think, that there'll be a concerted uh, pushback from the military and that behind that will be the U.S. military. Uh, so I think he's politically preparing you know, for that. And part of his strategy there, I think you can perceive it, when he says he's going to uh, really crush corruption and uh, drug runners and criminals, and, and he's also, he said, I'm going to kill them. It's a bit more of a political metaphor now, but uh, it's very hard language. But he's, he's really saying to the generals, you know, if you don't like corruption, if you really are sick of it, I'm on your side and we can stamp it out. Um, but to do that, we will have to stamp out another group of generals who are totally corrupt. And uh, will you do it with me? So he's sort of trying to divide and rule the military. That's, a, you know, again, a high-risk strategy. But he, he has to have some kind of strategy to, to change the culture of the military if, if any sort of genuine peace process is to, is to take place.
Is there any mention anywhere in his um, campaigning and also his swearing in about the the poverty of the people in the Philippines? I've read that virtually no other country apart from Haiti where the poverty is the poverty levels are equivalent. Yeah, I'm not quite sure of the comparative figures there, Jan, but you know, it, generally the figures are something like 70 to 80 percent of the people are living in poverty, and there's a large number, maybe 20. Five percent in extreme poverty, and these are the extreme poverty measure is you know, roughly two dollars fifty a day income. So um, you know it, it's a massive reality, a sort of really grinding poverty, and uh, Duterte has recognised this as a you know primary factor in the whole country. But you know he's not on his own in in this regard. The general rhetoric of all political leaders is pro poor. So, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in this language. It doesn't really matter. The previous president, Aquino, who's just finished, he had lots of pro-poor statements to make. <laughs> and uh, Gloria Macapagal Arroyo before, Ramos before, Estrada, they all use this language, some with more sincerity than others. You know, like I think Joseph Estrada was a little bit more sincere. You know, there's a few different angles to addressing the poverty issue. The, there's a couple of bills already before the, the Congress. One of this is to increase the pensions. So, you know, you can imagine how poor the pension for old age people would be. Um, but uh, there, there was a, a vote of the whole Congress to increase it, but it was vetoed by Aquino. So this new president can change that. There's also a bill for increasing the minimum wage. This president could now use his newly assembled majority in Congress to pass that instead of block it. And I think he's going to head in that direction. So there's a couple of immediate things to raise incomes at the lower level of the society. But the land reform issue is uh, a key feature of the peace talks that on their agenda immediately and industrial development. Again, these are all about a big shift in uh, economic strategy from the neoliberal open market, uh, let the international market determine the outcomes here in the Philippines approach. You know, it'll be a, another massive front for struggle. But um, he's also, uh, Duterte has also appointed the leader of the national peasant movement as the secretary for agrarian reform. So it's a chance, you know, for a genuine redistribution of lands to people who actually grow food and other crops on it, that would be a very important step in lifting the incomes of people at the uh, lowest level in, in the society. It's still a massively agrarian society. He's appointed labour movement leaders to the Department of Labour and Employment, and one of their first priorities is to change the law in relation to contracting, subcontracting, agency hire and so on. What we would in Australia call casualisation, they call it contractualisation. It's a mechanism in the labour market to make sure that trade unions virtually cannot form and that workers cannot bargain. You know, it's, it's actually unusual for workers even to be paid the minimum wage. The great bulk of workers are actually paid less than the minimum wage but can't get a handle on it because they're not allowed to form a union if they're not regular employees. So if they're casual employees, you know, they're, they're denied even the, start, the starting base, you know, to get organised. So um, there's a lot of struggles at the workplaces in the Philippines, but it's very difficult to make progress.
changing those things is important and the president's made a statement to the effect that he wants to see that sort of change. The trade union movement is mobilising, the peasant movement is mobilising and uh, the indigenous people are mobilising. It's a, it's a moment of hope. Uh, it's a moment of hope and repositioning of really important groups of people in the country. And do they have support within the, the government? Are there left candidates who well, are elected? In the actual election, the left did worse than the previous election, which suggested to me that um, you know, there was quite a bit of manipulation of the vote going on as cheating in the, in the counting. It's odd, you know, Australians can't quite pic picture it because in our parliament we, we have, you know, an opposition which is large and is an alternative government. But in, in the Philippines, the, the parties are very fluid and uh, like just now with Duterte becoming the president, people just change parties to enable him to have a majority in the Congress and in the Senate. The actual policy-driven left position, social reform, economic reform, for egalitarianism and so on, it's really a very small number, maybe 10 people in, in a Congress of hundreds. But, but they're quite effective because they're, they're virtually the only coherent voice. They're going to continue there, but that's not decisive you know, for the direction of the government. What's really happening here is that Duterte, as the executive, has recruited four or five really very uh, highly regarded leaders from the left to be in his cabinet. And they are going to be a minority in the cabinet, so actually it will be very hard for them there. But because they've, for now they've got the backing of the president, they will be empowered to do things. So I think there will be a sort of a dynamic where they go out and try to mobilise support for the progressive change, have the progressive change implemented, then try to carry it through. And if they run up against too much opposition and maybe the president backs away, obviously they'll be left exposed and uh, may maybe this, this period of, you know, prominent left-wing initiatives from the government will be short-lived. You know, maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months, maybe it's one year. On the other hand, if, uh, if these reforms uh, work, which they should, uh, to, to actually lift people's uh, basic conditions think that the popularity of the presidency would, would be enhanced and the you know, attractiveness and the ease of organising these mass movements on, of the uh, peasants, the workers, the women and Indigenous people and so forth, that will get stronger. You know? So I think um, there's a pathway here to, to change. And in this overall situation, we, we're looking at a ceasefire and peace talks. So, you know, there should be less military uh, action happening in the countryside and therefore less massive disruption of basic economic activity again more chance for people to speak up uh, organize and argue their case in a safer environment so you know there's, there's a lot of hope at the moment but i think it's tempered by a real knowledge a deep experience of uh, oppression brutal government brutal military interventions and so on so there's a wariness and people are very much you know ready for it not to work out <laughs> quite as good as you know they hope yeah it's it's an exciting dramatic and hopeful moment and has he got enough power to balk the the u.s and go along and talk to china well i think initially he he does because despite the strength of the u.s there the president has this potential um, to, to be a strong executive 
and uh, in international law, you know, it's it's virtually impossible for the U.S. to actually veto him going and talking to the president of China. Basics of international law are that the Philippines is a sovereign country with uh, uh, its interests, which it's got every right to, you know, express in the international community. So, for a little while at least, he might be able to defuse the situation in the South China Sea, and that, that certainly Duterte's intention. And that would then then allow him to, you know, uh, urge the U.S. to reduce their military presence in the Philippines, which is a very divisive factor and a dangerous factor in the country and in the region. So that's a high-stakes situation, but one that's very delicate, and I think the U.S. would be very careful not to overplay their hand at that level. Well, one more thing, Jan. I think uh, it's worth saying that the Department of Environment and Natural Resources is now going to be headed by a woman who is an anti-large-scale mining activist from Cebu. Her name is Gina Lopez. There was a lot of toing and froing about this this uh, department, but uh, it's the one that really supervises the mining industry in the Philippines, which has been the scene of a lot of violence and a lot of contention. And uh, so, again, I think this is a radical appointment. We should see a, a, a real big change. So in, in terms of Australia... The operation of uh, BHP and uh, Oceana Gold and the leftovers of the Tampakan operation with uh, Glencore, these are all pretty much significant things. We may see a uh, radical scaling back of, of the very destructive operations and some different emphasis on uh, small-scale mining that's uh, more based in the local communities happening. You know, we've just had the election in Australia and it's still a caretaker government. So, uh, But once things settle down here too, we should expect, a, you know, a higher level of discussion in Australia about what is happening in the Philippines. But unfortunately, it'll be more, you know, focused on the fate of Australian mining companies than on the fate of the Filipino people. But I do think we've got an opportunity here in Australia to educate, you know, more of the uh, community about the harsh situation in the Philippines, but the hope, you know, for a big improvement now. So that's that's a challenge for us. All right, Peter, who are you now these days? When, when I'm talking to you, I'm from the Philippines-Australia Union Link. So that's a group of trade unions that's, you know, had a long time yeah. now working right. with KMU and other sure. public sector unions in the Philippines. And um, also I've got a post as a, the Secretary General of the International coalition for human rights in the philippines and uh especially for our group it's a, it's a very hopeful moment and we are we're about to hold a conference in davao on july 23 and 24 about the new situation and how to enhance the international scrutiny and involvement in in trying to protect human rights in the philippines so i can talk to you about that when i come back you but can. I'll, I'll be there for that thanks peter and that is peter Murphy. I spoke with Peter at the end of last week and as he said he's from the Philippines Australia Union Link and the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines and there is that international conference coming up I think it's not this weekend coming but the next weekend after that so in a few weeks time we'll be speaking with Peter again to find out what they've been doing what they've been talking about what they hope to achieve and what they hope that the new president will be able to do for the people in the Philippines. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, 
as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force. Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Aranda Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See you there. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR Next on Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with Professor Bassam Dali, Palestinian-Australian academic who was awarded his PhD in Combustion Science at the University of Sydney in 1998 and is currently head of the School of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Adelaide. His topic for discussion is Israel's ultimate plans and why the current government will not sign a peace deal any time soon. But first, Bassam, can I ask you about your early life in Palestine? Born and raised in a village near the old Palestinian walled city of Akka, one of the oldest cities in the world, the fact that your family's experience of Nakba is different to that of many other Palestinians at that time. How would you describe growing up in the village? Well, I grew up in the north of Palestine, in the sort of lower parts of the Galilee Mountains, not too far from uh, the Lebanese borders, and around uh, five kilometres from the shore. The biggest city next to us was called Akka or Akum. It's a mixed city today of Arabs and Jews, and uh, uh, it's really um, one of the most historic cities in the north. During uh, the Nakba in '48, more than 400 villages were destroyed. Fortunately, uh, our own uh, village did not. My parents uh, and grandparents fled to the mountains, heading there for a few days until things sort of uh, quieted out before they went back to their own homes. Many others were not as lucky. Uh, they were driven to other neighboring countries, and more than 700,000 Palestinians became refugees. Why were your family village saved? <laughs> There's different reasons. Yeah, they were a little bit discriminate, and the way uh, they looked at uh, mixed villages, and they sort of looked at them slightly differently, depending also on the uh, leadership of the village. But, um, you know, our village um, you know, did not uh, resist, and many others did not resist, basically. They didn't have any weapons or they didn't have any means to resist, really. But even then, that didn't sort of stop the invading army to actually take it over, destroy it, uh, drive the population out, declare the area as a military area, you know, basically forbid anybody to go back home. It's anybody's guess. I mean, there's a lot of theories. Sometimes it's personal, sometimes it's the charismatic leader of the village sort of convinced him otherwise, but it was, it was discriminate. Even after Israel was established, they would come to a village, pick up on a family, put him on a, on a truck, and they want to drive him to the borders, basically. Uh, and uh, the stories of people throwing themselves in front of these trucks to prevent him from deporting their family and friends over. There's also stories of people who you know, walked overnight from Lebanon uh, back to um, Palestine uh, to be picked up again and uh, sort of either thrown in jail or thrown back on the, on the borders. So it was quite a... Uh, in a difficult period, but a lot of people who lost family, who uh, fled with almost nothing in a way, and 
many became displaced locally as well. And there was eventually Israel sort of legislated to have what's called uh, the absent uh, present law by which uh, these guys fled to another village to seek shelter. And uh, when they wanted to come back, uh, their land was confiscated. They could see their houses, but they're not allowed to go in. And our village in particular have uh, accumulated quite a few from neighboring villages that were destroyed, and these guys did not flee, so uh, they came to our village and stayed there. How long did your family stay away, and, and what was life like when they came back? They stayed away for almost uh, three, four days at the time. That's when the sort of army went into the village, and they were worried that they're going to be killed because there was, um, uh, as, as you may know, there was few massacres which happened in Palestine, and the idea of it was to scare the rest of the population to flee. Unfortunately, at the time, uh, my grandmother was uh, sick with cancer, and she could not leave. So uh, she uh, was left behind. They, they gave her some food and water. And supposedly her defense was some sort of salt in a small uh, bowl that if a soldier came to attack her, she would throw him at her eyes or something. That was her defense in a way. And when they came back, uh, I think it was four days later, uh, you know, they were fearing the worst. Fortunately, she was still alive. But uh, later, when the village was occupied, my uh, grandfather was taken uh, as a... A uh, prisoner. Everybody at the time owned some sort of protection uh, weapon in a way. He had uh, some old uh, rifle which he used for protection because he had a small uh, shop and uh, there's a lot of cars uh, early in the um, 20th century so he needed to protect himself. Um, He was a very uh, peaceful man in a way. And they conditioned his release on on him handing uh, this rifle back and uh, without any compensation, so he resisted in a way and he was put in jail. But eventually when his wife was really close to death, um, he had to hand it back uh, so they would release him. Yeah, his wife died sort of uh, not long after the occupation. What was your childhood like? From 48 to 66, it was military rule, so um, I was only two when that sort of was uh, lifted. I remember all the wars, I mean, um, the 67 and 73 and the 82 and so on. So by the time I, I left there, I mean, I think been through some five wars in a way. And as a kid, you know, you could see the fear on the um, in the eyes and faces of uh, your relatives and your parents. You hear about your um, uh, relatives and cousins in, in Lebanon, in Jordan, everywhere else, and there weren't as much communication, so whatever we heard, heard about him was through sort of second or third source in a way. Somebody saw him somewhere or somebody heard something in a way. There was no telephones, no internet and so on at the time. It wasn't pleasant. It was uh, always fearful. Here in a village, there's no sort of Jews, if you want, so you, um, you are taught Arabic in school, although we, we studied Hebrew as well. But, uh, yeah, you were trying to figure out, you know, you're living in this country that um, is oppressing you at the same time. You're feeling almost uh, a stranger in your own home. Eventually, sort of, I think you learn a lot about politics at a very early age. It's still the same today. I mean, uh, kids know more about world politics than, than adults in, in the West, I would say. It, they have to. They don't have a choice because they have to ask questions and why is this happening or why is that happening. And then, um, so you get to learn early on what's happening around you or why are you treating this way or that way. What prompted you to leave? 
I did my first degree in, in, in Israel, so I mean, because we stayed obviously in, in the north, uh, um, um, myself and my family um, remain Israeli citizens, of course. I was born in Israel, I was Israel when I was born, so I'm a, a Palestinian with an Israeli citizenship. And as, uh, as people know, 20% of the population today, you call them indigenous Palestinians, basically Palestinians who did not fled, who stayed in their land. So I got my first degree from Haifa, from the Technion, and then uh, I couldn't find a job, although I finished with uh, an honors degree. I found it really hard. Uh, there's a lot of uh, military industry which uh, do, does not take Arabs, and uh, even if it's not uh, for military purposes, uh, there's sort of uh, an underlying uh, discrimination by saying you have to have served in the army to work in this, in this field even if it's you know, producing uh, plastics or anything that's unrelated to any military sort of application. So they use it as an excuse to uh, discriminate in a way. I mean, there was a, I was working in a, in a shopping center one time, and uh, there's this uh, clothes shop that is advertising that they want an assistant. And the, you know, the conditions in the bottom is that after a military service. So you need a military service to be able to sell clothes to people. It's basically, it's, a, it's open racism in a way, if you want. Australia's a long way from Palestine. Well, this is why. <laughs> in a way, you, uh, you, you look around and say, okay, we learn English in a way, so I thought I have um, language to be able to work with. And um, I had a friend in Sydney. I knew I didn't want to go to the U.S., yeah, I thought uh, there's an opportunity to migrate somewhere where I could feel more free to uh, continue my dreams without feeling uh, limited by uh, just by my nationality or, or who I am in a way, rather than people treat me as, as, as a person, as a human being, rather than as an Arab or, uh, or a, you know, Christian or Muslim or Jew or whatever it is in a way. So um, I knew that Australia is um, a migrant country and that um, I'm more likely to get a fair go. So I came here in '91 to Sydney, in a way, and uh, never looked back. I uh, still have all my family living in there, um, and obviously, you know, we, we Palestinians always say that uh, we may leave Palestine, but Palestine never leaves us, in a way. So that uh, prompted my activism over the years. I'd imagine that you travel back home on a regular basis. What is life for Palestinians living in Israel today? Uh, I mean, if, if you look at it uh, sort of uh, from the outside, you'd say, okay, well, the standard of living has improved. Uh, Israel is a first world country. But if you dig a little bit deeper in a way, you'll see that uh, it's not uh, even-handed in a way. Uh, there is institutionalized discrimination against the Arab population. You could advance in life, but you're always limited by who you are or what, what your ethnicity is. Your villages are, um, don't get uh, much funding. Yeah, this statistic shows that Israel spends five times to educate one uh, Jewish kid as compared to an Arab child. You're not treated well in the airport. You're always being suspected. You, um, the village, there's no, no new places to, to build uh, houses. Israel uh, has not built a single sort of Arab town or village uh, since its inception, although there have been hundreds of Jewish-only places. So Israel comes and uh, creates a new, a new town or a new uh, village, if you want, and it would uh, only allow Jews to buy land and build in there, uh, which is obviously discriminatory. 
and they get around it with uh, the Jewish National Fund. They uh, they basically lease the land to uh, an entity in London, and this entity in London does not sort of adhere to any uh, Israeli law, so basically they have every right to sell to Jews and Jews only. And yet Arabs are uh, staying in their villages. They don't have where to go. Overt or maybe covert pressure for Arabs to leave Israel? Yes, all the time, in a way. Some of it is actually um, open. Uh, they call it uh, transfer. So these um, right-wing groups who come and offer uh, financial incentives for people to sell everything to what they call sell your passport. That you know, If you want to leave, you want to leave for forever, in a way. And they even offer to help you get a passport somewhere. So the other way, obviously, is to make your life hell, in a way. Nobody wants to live in a country where there's so much uh, hate and racism and uh, discrimination. Uh, and uh, yeah, pressure. So, but uh, the thing is, um, the community is thriving. While many left over the years, including myself, many others actually are still there. They sort of uh, they they believe that they belong to the land. It's not that the land belongs to them. In other words, they were born in there. This is where the ancestor is, and that uh, you know uh, they want to live in there regardless who's in power and regardless what's happening in there. And uh, they want to make the best out of what they can. Obviously, they look around and they see their uh, cousins and, uh, and family and uh, community in the West Bank and Gaza and also in refugee camp in the Middle East uh, are still sort of uh, suffering and, and don't have freedom and don't have uh, sort of what they have in a way, but uh, uh, still doesn't make their plot any lesser in a way. Talk now about, some, about what you see as the Israel's ultimate plans and, and why the current government will not sign a peace plan any time soon. Well, I think uh, it's, it's fair to say that um, I guess Israel has conned uh, the word and, and the Palestinians uh, at the start as well. In that, uh, if you watch their actions rather than uh, their words, you could see that uh, they have never intended to actually sign a deal and that the ideology of Zionism, of uh, if you want an exclusive access to the land of Palestine, will not be shaken, and um, they would spend every effort and uh, money to maintain their uh, hegemony and control uh, over the whole, the whole land. So if you look a little bit closely about what's really happening, um, and basically it came to me the other time when I watched um, uh, a documentary on Al Jazeera and they went to viewing this uh, professor from Barilan University which is basically the ideological hub of the right-wing uh, movement in Israel it's, it's no, no more no less than apartheid to some extent he calls it the eight-state solution and which basically implies that uh, if you look at the map while, the, while he's speaking you'd see that uh, what Israel has in mind is that uh, to uh, restrict the Palestinians to enclaves, or what in South Africa was known as Pantistans, and they uh, have take total control of uh, East Jerusalem, take total control of Area C, which is the, uh, the Jordan Valley, and they basically restrict uh, the Palestinians to self-control, if you want, in these small enclaves, and I mean very small, uh, something, uh, you know, the size of Adelaide or even less. This guy says, well, you know, um, that's the only solution we can offer the Palestinians. And if you look what's happening on the ground, you'd see that is actually this is the plan as such. And hence Israel is, uh, the Israeli government, 
have tried everything it can to elongate the negotiation. As you know, Oslo was in 1993. So 23 years later, we're still negotiating. We're still negotiating about a piece of land, which is the whole of um, Palestine, is the third, the third of Tasmania, just to get a proportion in a way of what the land. And yet, you know, we still need more than 23 years of negotiation to try and find a solution. In fact, everybody knows what the solution is. I think is what's missing is the political will. As, as long as Israel has the um, power and control, I guess, and the support of the international community, it will still continue doing what it's doing, what has been doing for so many years in a way. It, it is unfortunate. It is actually causing more havoc and uh, problems in, in the Middle East and, uh, and fueling a lot of conflicts around the world. And uh, the Palestinians are paying really a heavy price, uh, as you see in a daily basis. Next on Tuesday Home Time. And that is Professor Bassam Daly. And as I just said there, next week on Tuesday Home Time, I'll be playing part two of that rather long, longer interview with Professor Bassam Daly. He is um, at the University of Adelaide and um, has been in Australia, as he said, since 1991. Coming up to 20 past five, in a few moments we'll be hearing more analysis of the Chilcot Report. 3CR Showreel Fundraiser, Thursday the 28th of July. Fallout, stunning documentary by Lawrence Johnson, starring Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Neville Shoot, and 1959 Melbourne during shooting of On the Beach with a side order of international fear of a nuclear holocaust. Today... Every inhabitant of this planet must contemplate the day when this planet may no longer be habitable. Fallout, July the 28th, 7pm, upstairs at 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. $10. Keep 3CR Radical Radio on the air. Neville Shute bought the most appalling concept of all to a mainstream audience. For me it was real, just penetrated every bone of my body. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who has begun the mammoth task of reading the Chilcot Report. At the time of the massive rallies here in Australia and particularly in Melbourne, Nick was a coordinator of the Victorian Peace Network. I asked him first for the genesis of the Chilcot Report. During the period after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, there was growing concern within the United Kingdom, as in Australia, the United States, about the conduct of the war. It was clear that the objectives set out at the beginning of the war weren't being met in terms of bringing stability to the region, in terms of a quick and clean war, all the sort of propaganda that came out at the time. And particularly there were high levels of British casualties. Uh, British troops were largely based around Basra uh, in the south. Um, Over time, the so-called objective of stabilising Basra was clearly failing, and yet young British soldiers were coming home in body bags. And the families were agitating against the British government. So after Tony Blair, who was the decision-maker that sent Britain to war in support of the United States, his successor Gordon Brown called an inquiry to investigate the decision-making that led to war and the conduct of the war under Sir John Chilcott. It was supposed to be a quick report, uh, a year-long study to give feedback to the government, but Chilcott and a panel of assessors started hearing public testimony from the families, then increasingly from officials. The report, here we are seven years later, and after extensive delays, and indeed criticism that there were extensive delays, the report has been publicly released. It's a massive tome, millions of words, sometimes five times as long as War and Peace, and I must plead guilty, I've been wading through it uh, over the last week or so since it's been released, and I'm not finished yet. It's an incredibly detailed and forensic account of particularly administrative decision-making uh, behind the scenes, as well as the political decision-making. UK spent over £9 billion on the war, and people are starting to ask, why, what was it all for? Given the chaos we see in Iraq today, given the rise of uh, so-called Islamic State, Daesh and other forces uh, in the Middle East, it's a, it's a really important piece of work, although it does have a number of flaws. And what were the key findings? Key findings are pretty stark, and you only have to go to the statement by Sir John Chilcott um, on the 6th of July when he released the, uh, the report, and I quote, We have concluded that the United Kingdom chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at that time was not a last resort. He goes on to conclude, I quote, The judgments about the severity of the threat posed by Iraq's weapons of mass destruction were presented with a certainty that was not justified. Despite explicit warnings, the consequences of the invasion were underestimated. The planning and preparedness for 
Iraq after Saddam Hussein was wholly inadequate, and in the absence of a majority on the UN Security Council of support for military action, we considered that the United Kingdom was in fact undermining the UN Security Council's authority. So there's a number of stark, very clear statements there that the whole issue of weapons of mass destruction, which was one of the drivers towards war, was based on a certainty that wasn't justified, that peaceful options for disarmament of Iraq's military had not been exhausted, and that the whole process undermined the United Nations, even though the United Nations was seen as the pillar. For me also, one of the really telling quotes from the report was about hindsight. Even in the last week, you've heard people like John Howard and Jim Molan, a senior Australian military official who served as number two in the uh, operations of Iraq in the mid-2000s, talked about, well, we were doing what we did uh, because of the information we had at the time. You know, in hindsight, you might criticise it, but at the time, we thought we were doing right. And Howard said that, uh, Blair said that, a number of leaders in response to the Chilcot report have said that. But Chilcot says very clearly that that's nonsense. Once again, I quote, We do not agree that hindsight is required. The risks of internal strife in Iraq, active Iranian pursuit of its interests, regional instability and al-Qaeda activity in Iraq were each explicitly identified before the invasion. And as someone who was involved in the peace movement at that time, I think that's a really important statement, that the arguments that's put forward, well, we were doing what we did, you know, on the basis that we thought we were right at the time. There was massive, massive public debate at the time, challenging each of the statements that were put forward to justify the war. There was also a lot of contrary evidence, not just opinion, not just emotion, but a lot of people were debunking the evidence. And in fact, the people who were boosters for the war, both in government and in the media cheer squad that led us to war, were spectacularly wrong. Um, you think of conservative journalists like Greg Sheridan, the foreign editor of The Australian. Sheridan at the time said, oh, there won't be any refugee problem. Well, look at where we are today. Look at the whole experience of the Tampa crisis and the aftermath of sanctions on Iraq, the whole impact. Sheridan famously wrote that an invasion of Iraq will, quote, discredit extremism and hasten Israeli-Palestinian peace. Now, I'm sorry, there's a lot of extremist Islamist movements today in the Middle East. The Israeli-Palestinian peace that was supposed to come from knocking off Saddam Hussein talked to the Palestinians about how far their cause has been advanced by the assault on Iraq. I mean, the, the sort of cheer squad at the time were advancing things that at the time people knew were dodgy, the claims that were being advanced. And even people in the peace movement did a lot of research saying, hang on, there are questions here about what will happen after the invasion, what will happen with refugees, querying the intelligence that was used to justify the war and was publicly advocated to justify the war. Even the, the UN the men that were in there searching for these weapons, Hans Blix and others. Can you talk about them? Yeah, I think that it was very clear that some countries were reluctant to see the war go ahead. I mean, France, Germany and some other European powers were uh, using their position uh, in the UN, in the, uh, like France and the UN Security Council, to delay the rush to war. Blix and others who'd been involved in searching for weapons of mass destruction had found evidence of past programs but were also reporting 
that the so-called massive stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, even nuclear weapons, were not to be found. I'm not like some people in the, the opposition of the war who say that the Saddam regime didn't have weapons of mass destruction. I believe that Saddam used chemical weapons, for example, against Kurdish populations during the Iraq-Iran war um, between 1980 and 88. There's evidence of Iraq using weapons against Iranian forces during the Iran-Iraq war. Indeed, I, I argue against some people that these were war crimes by the Saddam regime. But you have to look, go back to that period and look at who was supporting them. At the time, France and the United States were providing a range of military and intelligence support to the Saddam Hussein regime against Iran. A lot of the targeting evidence that was uh, targeting information was provided by the United States back in 1983, 1984. Uh, there's famous photos of Donald Rumsfeld, later the US Defense Secretary, shaking hands with Saddam, who was seen as a, a pillar of solidarity with the West against Iran soon after the 1979 Iranian Revolution. The attitude of the United Kingdom, of France, of the United States towards the regimes in Syria, in Iraq, uh, need a historical perspective where they were seen as allies against a resurgent Iran. The irony, of course, is that today people are allying themselves with Iran against al-Qaeda and against uh, Islamic State. The death of David Kelly. There was... A series of scandals at the time. Um, David Kelly, who'd been a, a weapons inspector who was very knowledgeable about Saddam's programs, was involved in uh, publicly challenging as a whistleblower a number of the claims that were being advanced about the history and the size and the current operational capacity of Saddam's arsenal. Um, he was found dead. Um, there was a lot of suspicion at the time. And claims were being advanced by the UK government, by the Tony Blair government at the time, that were, frankly, implausible. Famously, there was a dossier that was put forward to Parliament in September 2002, some months before the war in early 2003, and the claim, for example, that Tony Blair in Parliament cited Hussein Kamal, who was the son-in-law of um, Saddam Hussein, that the regime had an ongoing and extensive biological weapons program. But... He didn't mention the part that Hussein Kamal had said, yes, we did have a program like that, but it's all been destroyed. And Kelly, who was uh, very knowledgeable about these sorts of programs, um, was starting to be a whistleblower and was found dead. There was a huge scandal at the time. And I think what's chilling about the Chilcot inquiry is that it goes into, in forensic detail, a lot of these questions and shows that a number of the dossiers that were put forward to Parliament, the claim that the weapons of mass destruction could be operational within 45 minutes. Um, it goes through and debunks a lot of these sort of questions that were put forward, as it was at the time. And I think the point about hindsight is really important. And I think this is a really crucial question, not just going back to look at the poor decision-making in the lead-up to 2003 on, for ordinary humanity, not for the interests of those who wanted to go to war. But there are two core questions about this use and misuse of intelligence. Firstly is about the quality of the intelligence what sort of evidence do you have to mount your case? And secondly, is the way that politicians use or misuse the evidence? And Chilcot's inquiry is interesting. It goes into both those questions. The first is that intelligence is not infallible, um, that there is uh, contradictory evidence and part of the process of intelligence analysis. It's not just about gathering the information, but it's about judging whether it's valid or not. And 
there's a lot of inquiries into the quality of the intelligence. That's what's happened in Australia. We had an inquiry in 2004, a parliamentary inquiry with Kim Beasley and other people on it, an inquiry into the evidence around Iraq's weapons of mass destruction within Australia about John Howard's decision-making to go to war. And secondly, Philip Flood, long-time uh, senior DFAT official, former ambassador to Indonesia, held an inquiry into the intelligence agencies and their quality a year or so later. So we've only looked at this intelligence question and it raised a number of critiques about decision-making. But I think one of the key things that comes out of the Chilcot report is not just about the knowledge that some of the intelligence was dubious, but that in fact the intelligence agencies, when they gave good intelligence to government, were ignored or that the intelligence was twisted for political ends. And this comes down to this question about the strategic interests of the decision-makers in both the case of the United Kingdom, as has been documented by Chilcot, and I'd argue in the case of Australia, the decision to go to war had been made already in 2002, and the argy-bargy about going to the UN and so on was simply political cover. Famously, the, the Chilcot inquiry has found correspondence, handwritten notes between Tony Blair and George Bush, one on the 28th of July 2002, months before the issue went to the UN Security Council, months before the actual invasion, Blair wrote in a handwritten note, I will be with you whatever. Now, there's a long and dishonourable tradition, all the way with LBJ, said Harold Holt, all the way up the Hindu Kush with George Bush. I mean, people have followed the United States to war, or indeed, as in the case in Australia and Vietnam, provoked the US to get more involved in the war for our broader strategic interests. So I think that question about decision-making, exaggerating it, been striking evidence reading through Chilcot about how the Joint Intelligence Committee, which is the body that links together all the different intelligence agencies, civilian and military, in the, in the United Kingdom, was giving evidence to Tony Blair that we're not quite certain about this. Quote, intelligence of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs is sporadic and patchy. So that was sent to the decision makers. Did he have trouble getting that information? Not at all. Not at all. He was getting that information and then either ignoring it or twisting it to the political purpose of the rush to war. Now, I meant Chilcot. Did Chilcot have... Chilcot got a lot of that information. Now, it took years to drag out and there was a whole process. I haven't had time to talk about the whole tortured process of making this report, which is another story in itself. But I think it's really important to know that the spooks are not always wrong. Um, The spooks have got some information and... When it suits decision-makers, they will use it. When it doesn't suit them... I mean, one of the big questions is the contribution that the invasion of Iraq has made to the rise of Islamist terror. You see groups like Daesh, like Al-Qaeda and so on, and the collaboration. At the time, there was an argument that, particularly in the United States, that Saddam Hussein would support Al-Qaeda, who was the demon at the time. This was pre-IS... And yet, uh, in November 2001, the Joint Intelligence Committee in the UK advised decision-makers Saddam Hussein had refused to permit any al-Qaeda presence in Iraq. There was, according to the JIC, no credible evidence of covert transfer of weapons of mass destruction technology and expertise to terrorist groups. Uh, More importantly, the intelligence people were warning the UK government that invading Iraq would increase the danger of terrorism, so-called. 
Now, there's a whole debate about state terror. You know, think about ordinary Iraqis who are facing shock and awe bombing. That's terror. But even the retail terrorism that we see today with the rise of Islamic State, people were being warned before the invasion that the invasion of Iraq will contribute and, and exacerbate this. In February 2003, a month before the invasion, Tony Blair was warned, and I quote, Al-Qaeda and associated networks would remain the greatest terrorist threat to the United Kingdom. Its activity would increase at the onset of any military action in Iraq. The broader threat from Islamist terrorists will also increase in the event of war, reflecting intensified anti-US, anti-Western sentiment in the Muslim world, including amongst Muslim communities in the West. So intelligence officers were warning the government, the UK government, that invading Iraq would contribute to the rise of anti-Western activity. Now, as I say, there's a whole debate about what constitute terror. You know, terror is often used as a label, you know, that's misused as a label. Who are the biggest terrorists and so on? I won't go into that now, but even in their own terms, even in the terms of, you know, the British state, they were warned that invading Iraq would contribute to a rise of retail terrorism. Decision was ignored. You're listening to an interview with Nick McClelland, journalist, researcher, and during the lead-up to the Iraq War, a coordinator of the Victorian Peace Network, and Nick is analysing the recently released Chilcot report. Did he look at the issue of Iraq 10 years after sanctions, a, a virtual crippled country already? No, except to the extent that the, you know, the argument was that the weapons of mass destruction that did exist in earlier times had been largely dismantled by the UN sanctions regime. One of the weakest areas, I think, is around civilian casualties. The period of sanctions caused hundreds of thousands of excess deaths. It's hard to talk about this, you know, without sounding inhumane, but, you know, many more people died because of the sanctions in the lead-up to the war we had Madeleine Albright talking about half a million children dying and said it was, it was worth it. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a, a fairly chilling chapter on civilian casualties in the Chilcot Report and it's a really important one to read because, as I say, the peace movement was talking, obviously, about the civilian casualties that were likely from uh, the bombing, from the war and from the post-invasion scenario, the feeling that the, the rapid military intervention was relatively rapid but the war the counterinsurgency that followed the years of conflict between islamic forces militias the british the u.s australian troops on the ground were there and there were many citizens groups that tried to document civilian casualties groups like the iraq body count uh, which was a non-government organization that was just scanning the media to see reports of civilian deaths and starting to add them up as a simple mathematical process. There were studies conducted by John Hopkins University and by the British medical magazine The Lancet, one of the most eminent medical journals in the world, that was looking through epidemiological studies and hospital records at civilian casualties. And this was a highly contested area because the US, United Kingdom and Australia were all arguing that there were, yes, of course, there were some civilian casualties, but very few and that the sort of figures that were being put forward by the non-government groups, by the medical groups and so on, were exaggerated. There's a lot of technical debate, which we won't go into now, but one of the striking things is the Chilcot finds that the response of the British government 
was not to say, okay, well, if we think these NGO groups are wrong and we've got much better intelligence than they do, what are the numbers? Chilling finding of the Chilcot Inquiry is that they didn't care and they didn't look. Um, In his own words, quote, the government's consideration of the issue of Iraqi civilian casualties was driven by its concern to rebut accusations that coalition forces were responsible for the deaths of large numbers of civilians and to sustain domestic support for operations in Iraq. So when they looked at the issue of civilian casualties, it wasn't to look at the human cost of non-combatants in Iraq, it was to rebut criticisms that were coming from the peace movement and from independent observers, and it was to sustain support for the war. And reality intervened, and the, the body bags coming home of British troops, as in Australia, public awareness of the civilian casualties gradually wore down the enthusiasm of the US, the Australian, and the British governments for the war. But it was clear in the early parts of the war, 2004, 5, 6, this was a hotly contested issue. And that chapter on civilian casualties just shows the immorality of the governments, where the only consideration they gave of civilian casualty was essentially to rebut the peace movement, critics and studies by independent observers like the Red Cross, the Lancet and others who were trying to look at the humanitarian cost of this war. Well, where's the morality of war anyway? Where's the legality of war? That's, I think, one of the weaknesses of Chilcott in that ultimately he doesn't go to the question of legality. Indeed, um, in the report, he uh, looks at this question and says, the inquiry has not expressed a view on whether military action was legal. That could, of course, only be resolved by a properly constituted and internationally recognised court. So the court that is responsible for that is the International Criminal Court. Article 6 of the ICC statutes say, and I quote, that planning, preparation, initiating or waging of a war of aggression is a crime falling within ICC jurisdiction. One of the great challenges, though, about whether people like George Bush and Tony Blair and so on should you be charged with war crimes is victor's justice and that the major powers don't recognise the authority of international law. I mean, we're seeing this this week. Um, The International Court of Justice is ruling on a case between the Philippines and China over China's operations in the South China Sea, potential breaches of maritime zones. And the United States, indeed, is calling on its allies, like Australia, to challenge the Chinese over breaches of maritime law. But the greatest irony in this is, firstly, the United States has not ratified the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. I'm always amused when the US says, oh, the Chinese are breaching maritime zones and uh, you know, territorial waters and so on. The United States has refused to ratify the Law of the Sea. So there's always a hypocrisy when they start saying the Chinese are breaching the law of the sea. Well, hang on, you guys haven't even ratified the International Convention. And secondly, there is a precedent for the International Criminal Court and uh, wars of aggression, and that was the United States against Nicaragua. The the International Court of Justice found against the United States for its role in Nicaragua, the arming of the Contras and the mining of harbours, which was designated as a war crime under international law, and the US refused to accept the um, authority of the court uh, for its actions. 
So I think that there's uh, certainly hypocrisy amongst the most powerful states, not just the United States, but also China and Russia and others, about international law. They'll quote it when it suits them, but to be in, to be under enforcement uh, is there. And that's why today you see, for example, moves towards creating a, a nuclear weapons convention that will hem in the nuclear powers who refuse to abide by international law on uh, uh, the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. Talk for a bit about the peace movement, the worldwide peace movement, just in England itself. I believe that over 50% of the people were against the war. Hundreds of thousands of people in Australia and hundreds of thousands in many, many countries around the world took part in rallies, demonstrations. People thought that they'd lost. You don't agree? We certainly didn't stop the war going ahead. I was involved in public protests at the time through the Victorian Peace Network and uh, there was a lot of hope that we could stop Australia's involvement in the invasion, as we called it at the time, which many people still refuse to call it that, although Chilcot is happy to talk about the invasion of the sovereign state of Iraq against international law. But I don't agree with the argument that we failed or that the protests had no impact. I think there's a lot of disillusionment from people that you know, these were the largest rallies we'd seen in Melbourne, bigger than the P&D rallies against nuclear weapons in the 1980s, bigger than the famous rally, the moratorium against Vietnam, uh, which is always seen as the high point of public protest. The rallies against the war in Iraq, in Melbourne certainly, in Sydney, were much bigger than previous protests around nuclear weapons in the 1980s, around the Vietnam War in the 1970s. And yet, the war went ahead and many people walked away. And indeed, because of the military initial military conflict was quite quick, the peace movement demobilised pretty quickly. But I think the evidence shows that there was an enormous impact. And one of the, the, the things about reading Chilcot is it's clear that public protest and public opinion was having an enormous impact on the bureaucracy and on the decision-makers. Many of their decisions were framed because of their awareness that this great superpower, international public opinion, was so much against the war. So much of their energy went into distorting intelligence findings for their own political purposes. So much of their energy went into rebutting actions, as I say, by peace movement and independent observers to document civilian casualties, simply because they knew that that was whittling away support for the war that had been whipped up Remembering after 2001 and the fear of al-Qaeda, the supposed link between Iraq and al-Qaeda, totally fraudulent, they were very aware that public opinion was wearing away. And so I think one of the sobering things about reading Chilcot is that our protests were in fact incredibly effective. They scared the state and the state went to such levels of lying and creating or twisting information for their own benefits simply because they were aware that the public would not except the real reasons that they went to war. It's always worth remembering, too, that public protest on an international scale had enormous effects. Certainly in Britain, Australia, United States, the governments went to war, but many governments didn't go to war. And, and you think about France and other countries at the time that were reluctant to go to war. Turkey, for example, refused to allow US forces to invade Iraq from the north an enormously important strategic decision that had implications that we see today with the rise of the Kurdish movement and the potential for uh, the creation of an independent Kurdistan in the north of uh, Syria and Iraq. 
The Turks incredibly worried about that, um, and they were very aware that having American forces invade Iraq from the north would transform uh, the area, something we see today still being played out uh, 15 years later. I think it's really important to, to recognise that Turkey's role at that time meant that the uh, invasion came from the south, from Kuwait and, and, and so on, and not from the north. So s- steps that, that the peace movement take at the time did have an impact we certainly didn't stop the war going ahead. We didn't stop the invasion going ahead. But I think that the, uh, the Chilcot Inquiry shows how much public protest does impact on decision-making, um, not that it, it's always successful, but that it has significant impact. And I think that's a really important lesson to learn, that people shouldn't feel disheartened that just because we had 150,000 people in the streets, it didn't stop the invasion. But it did have an enormous impact, and I think that's important. It also makes you think strategically, okay, what might have contributed to stopping the conflict? And that's a real question, therefore, that the peace movement and future peace movements need to discuss. We head to future wars. Two last questions, Nick. The impact in the UK and possibly here in Australia of this report, and were you surprised at the results? I wasn't too surprised in that a lot of the evidence that came out was aired in the newspapers over time as Chilcot went through. Um, for people who are interested in the topic, it's possible to, uh, to read it. I am a bit concerned that you know, a significant body of work is, has had its week in the media. Um, it'll be forgotten until the next war, and we tend to forget the heritage of, of lies that takes us to war each time. I'm old enough to remember the invasion of Iraq in 1991, where there were allegations that Iraq you know, had taken babies from humidity cribs and left them lying on the floor and stolen the humidity cribs from Kuwait and taken them back to Iraq. Total lie, fabricated for propaganda purposes. And yet we rushed to war again in 2003 um, with similar uh, distortion of of evidence. Um, I think that there's there's a short memory question. Midnight Oil wrote this very well uh, in their song. Uh, You know, we have short memories about the way in which imperialism will, will drive to war and that the, the, the fear-mongering that is used leading up to war um, sometimes makes people forget lessons from the past. Chilcot is six million words. It's a huge, bloody two million words, 6,000 pages. You know, it's multi-volume document to show, hang on, guys, you know, this is a pretty forensic study It has gaps, as I say. It doesn't really take on the question of legality and war crimes, whether leaders like Bush should be charged for war crimes, which I think is a really important question. It does pose, I think, for the future also questions about restraining executive decision-making. One of the features about Australia and Britain was we backed the United States, not through parliamentary decision, not through full cabinet consultation, not through what I would argue would be democratic processes, but through decisions by the executive. Now, some people are pacifists and argue that we should never go to war, and they were a key and vital part of the peace movement in 2003 and beyond. I'm not a pacifist personally. I think there are circumstances where it's legitimate to take up weapons in defence of yourself against. There, Fortunately, I've never been in that situation, but when you think about you know, Indigenous peoples resisting colonialism, I think that there's a, a debate to be had about that. And yet... The executive decision-making is at the heart of this. And there are groups actively campaigning, no radicals, but quite mainstream figures who are today campaigning for the reform of war powers. There's a group called 
Australians for War Powers Reform. And anyone who's interested in this should look at their website. And they're saying that the, the way in which Australia goes to war, like the United Kingdom, should be reviewed and changed. That we shouldn't leave it to a captain's pick where after, after 9-11 and the, the attack on, on the United States, ANZUS was invoked by Prime Minister Howard. You know, first time ANZUS treaty has been invoked um, to basically back the Americans in Afghanistan and, and following in Iraq. So there's a whole range of things that the, the Australians for War Powers Reform Group have been proposing. Things like the need for parliamentary debates, parliamentary votes, uh, for independent legal advice, for um, setting goals and objectives, for exit strategies being defined before you go in rather than afterwards. Now, this is mainstream opinion. Peter Lay, former Chief of Staff, you know, the late Malcolm Fraser, um, Paul Barrett, who was a former Secretary of Defence. There are people within the mainstream of, uh, of decision-making who feel that it shouldn't be left to the John Howards and Tony Blairs to make a purely political decision to follow US presidents. And as, as Blair said, I will be with you whatever. Well, whatever's not good enough. And I think it's really important that we look at this question about how do we restrain executive war-making. The main question for that is not just elite you know, parliamentary debate, but mass popular protest. And I think you know, one of the lessons that I think we really need to take from Chilcot is that popular protest has enormous impact. You know, the feeling that we didn't stop the war, well, read the documents. The documents show that the British state was under enormous pressure from public opinion. And public opinion is a force that needs to be nurtured. Uh, we need to build on awareness of what happened in Iraq, what is still happening in Iraq for the time that our government gets ready to go to war the next time. And I'm indebted to Nick McClellan for taking on this mammoth task of reading the Chilcot Report and indeed all his work that he does. And as I said earlier, Nick was one of the coordinators of the Victorian Peace Network in those huge rallies in 2003. That's it for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock, so it's bye for now. Go off with David Robix and I'll be back then. Bye-bye.